This is Ed Mazur, chairman of the City Club of Chicago. Our program today was entitled The Next Chapter, Inspiration in Work and Philanthropy. It was a panel discussion moderated by Joshua Hale, who's the president and CEO of the Big Shoulders Fund. The Big Shoulders Fund invests approximately $25 million annually to support 75 inner-city Catholic schools, serving nearly 20,000 students, 80% are minority, 66% live in poverty. On the panel with Mr. Hale was Julie Chavez of the Bank of America. Julie is responsible for managing programs in the areas of philanthropy, community and civic engagement, nonprofit board service, volunteerism, and sponsorships in the Chicago area. A third panelist was Eric Weinheimer, who's the president and CEO of Forefront. Forefront is the only regional association in the U.S. that represents grant makers, nonprofits, advisors, social entrepreneurs, impact investors, and their allies. They have 1,100 members, and their mission is to build a vibrant social impact center for all the people of Illinois. Our final panelist was Kim Hubbard, a director of the PIMCO Funds, a member of the Field Foundation, and many other boards and foundations. She has over 30 years of experience. Prior to joining the board, she was the global head of investments for Ernst & Young. The program explored the intersection of philanthropy and work. All the panelists agree. People are looking to employees, and employees are turning to employers to take stands on a variety of public issues today, unlike ever before. Why philanthropy for our panelists? Well, they said it's all part of their DNA, moving into their faith, into action, mission, and not worry about profits. They felt that folks can be inspired on a daily basis and learn to connect to various networks. All agreed. People in philanthropic endeavors need perseverance to see issues through to completion. Philanthropy needs leadership, they said. Commitment from the government, business community, religious, and other communities. They're very impressed with the role of millennials in the philanthropic area. They all agree these millennials are walking and talking and telling the truth and getting very involved in philanthropic enterprises. The will to do good and to do well is what motivates people in the philanthropic area. They conclude by saying they must avoid working at the fringes. They must learn to collaborate. For example, the coming census, billions of dollars are at stake for the state of Illinois, political representation, and more. So avoid the fringes and work together as a team. Good afternoon, everybody. How are you guys doing today? Happy Thanksgiving. It's always a great time of year to be here, a uh, time of giving thanks and celebrating friendship and how we make a difference in the world. So I want to start out just by uh, thanking Dr. Mazur, but also Jay Doherty, who really helped dream this up uh, five, six years ago when we started this this whole thing. And um, also to uh, the board of the, uh, the City Club of Chicago for their belief in this and celebrating all the good that we do in the city. Um, oftentimes, uh, the City Club tackles very hard-hitting issues. I think this is a hard-hitting issue, but this is one that kind of fills the soul as well. Uh, also, Amanda Gosti, who heads up the uh, effort here, she does phenomenal work. A big round of applause for Amanda. I also had to thank my partner in crime, Michaela Metzger, who works with me at Big Shoals Fund. Uh, moonlights every year, helping put this together. She's a brain of this whole thing. Amazingly, this is our fifth panel on philanthropy uh, here at the City Club. And so that's cause for celebration, just that um, it would be nice enough to keep inviting me back. So I'm hoping that again this year, after a great panel, they'll say, we've got to keep this going. But over the years, we've explored a number of different topics on this aspect. If you remember back, the first one was Chicago Philanthropy, A Brave New World. The next one was Doubling Down on Mission. The third was What Fills Your Soul? And then most recently, last year, we did Ripples of Hope, Philanthropy, The Next Generation. And with leaders from uh, the city on these panels, uh, people like Liz Thompson and Angelique Power, John Canning and Steve Solomon, Maria Kim, Jim Parsons, and Deborah Liver, and many others who came and participated in this, we have learned an awful lot about philanthropy in our city and our region and the great good that goes on. But even more, we've been inspired that we can make a difference together. 
Uh, this year we thought it would be interesting to explore the intersection of philanthropy and work. And we thought this topic would be particularly timely given the recent release of Edelman's annual trust barometer. I'm sure many of you have seen it because for 20 years Edelman has conducted this annual study on trust and credibility, measuring the changing views of people, just like all of us here, on government, NGOs, business, the media, and other topical issues. And the 2019 Edelman Trust Barometer had some interesting findings that I think are highly relevant to the intersection of career and philanthropy. And it's probably a trend that many of us have already been experiencing with employees and colleagues. This year's study clearly shows that people are increasingly turning to their relationship with their employer to help them have an impact and navigate the world. This growing trust also speaks to the growing expectations of employers. Amazingly, nearly 70% of employees expect that their employers will join them in taking action on societal issues. That's up significantly. And even more, the number of people who expect the CEO and senior leadership to take a stand on challenging issues, especially publicly, jumped 11 points this year to 76%. It's pretty significant. So ultimately, the Edelman report summarized the data collected from the respondents saying that the expectation is that the CEOs and senior leadership must do more than talk. They must demonstrate their personal commitment inside and outside of the company. In many ways, this is a new opportunity for the intersection of career and philanthropy. According to the Edelman report, as people increasingly have less trust in government and the media, they are looking to their employers, specifically senior leadership, to lead so that they, as employees, can be part of an organization that is making a meaningful societal impact. Our panels today have walked the walk uh, and have contributed in a distinct way to Chicago philanthropy into this changing environment. And before we have an opportunity to hear from them reflect on some of these themes, I'd just like to give a little different background on each one of them um, because they're both a treasure in Chicago and the philanthropic community. <clears throat> so I'll start with Julie Chavez. Julie has had a career in helping companies effectively navigate their own philanthropy and be examples to their employees that they're looking for. Julie has and continues to make personal imprint on Chicago's philanthropic community. She was a founding member of Chicago Latinos in Philanthropy, which is not only an organization that has endured since they founded it, but it continues to provide philanthropy in the Latinx community. In another example of her leadership in philanthropy, she was not only a passionate advocate for the founding of the National Museum of Mexican Art, she remains involved in leading this international treasure. Julie is a native of Chicago in the great and vibrant Pilsen neighborhood, and for more than 30 years, Julie has been leading Bank of America's giving programs. And from uh, her, grass, uh, her grassroots approach, her personal experiences in philanthropy, and a deep knowledge of the city and the region, coupled with a desire to pass on the gift of philanthropy to many others, she has helped realize great success in inviting employees at the bank to share in the soul-filling work to help those in need. Her success in the arena, I think the numbers speak themselves. Just since 2014, Bank of America's Chicago area employees, not the company, just the employees, have personally given $8.5 million to local nonprofits. They volunteered over 215,000 hours, and I see it, and I work at Big Shoals Fund in so many organizations around the city. And this is on top of the $40 million investment the bank has made in things like community development, workforce development, and basic needs. So please help me in welcoming Julie to the panel. Our next panelist is Kim Hubbard. And Kim is currently an active board member, active corporate board member with PIMCO and with the, the publicly traded state auto financial group. Most recently, Kim was uh, global head of investments, treasurer, and chief investment officer for Ernst & Young, where she managed $7.1 billion. That'll keep you up at night. <laughs> <laughs> and prior to that, she had lots of training for that. She held top leadership posts for the state of Illinois, such as executive director of the Illinois Finance Authority, where she managed the issuance of $23 billion in tax-exempt bond financings designed to create jobs and grow businesses right here in Illinois. Her integrity and leadership are second to none, resulting in a number of calls in the civic service when situations need to be improved or repaired. I think it's another form of philanthropy unto itself. And if you attend charitable events in the city or participate in the nonprofit sector, you will see Kim, as I do, all over town. 
Currently, Kim serves on the board of the Field Foundation and the Economic Club of Chicago. Previously, she was on the board of the Shed, Lurie's, Prospective Shutter, and a number more. But as you will hear as we get to know Kim a little better, her philanthropy and civic engagement has been personally intertwined in her work over these many years. Please help me welcome Kim as well. And Eric Weinheimer. Eric is the president and CEO of Forefront, which is a well-known and well-thought-of membership organization that brings together nonprofits, grant makers, public agencies, advisors, and allies under one umbrella. And while Eric has a big and demanding job at Forefront, he is doing groundbreaking work leading an organization which is a tremendous resource across the state for the benefit of the social sector writ large. But in my mind, Eric is best known for his transition from the financial services sector to the social impact sector when he took the position of president and CEO of a fledgling organization, the CARE program, back in 1996. In Eric's word, he was motivated and charged up to, quote, be a part of something that was bigger than myself, in particular to help those struggling with urban poverty. We'll hear more from Eric shortly, but Eric's passion translated into innovation impact that would, first and foremost, help those care ambition to serve, but also inspired and captured the intentions of, attention of onlookers near and far. Care is a model for those of us inside the social impact sector, and I would say outside as well, to look to for inspiration, both in terms of the impact and how they do it. He has and continues to help create opportunities at Forefront for for-profit company employees in the grant-making community to intersect effectively with the social impact sector toward helping others with a hand up. Please help me welcome Eric as well. So thank you guys all again for doing this, all great friends, and you're nice to say yes to this hard-hitting journalism we're going to have here today. Just little questions about who's going to, you're going to vote for in the upcoming election. Nothing, nothing too. No, I want to start out, um, you are all leaders in, in the philanthropic sector in our city and in the region, uh, but what, when you think back, you know, what, what motivated you or what motivates you um, to give so much of your focus to philanthropy, to helping others? What? What was it that originally? Do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm from Pilsen, so as uh, my friend Carlos Tortolero has said, you can take the girl out of Pilsen, but you can't take the Pilsen out of the girl. <laughs> so um, when I look back at my roots, that's very important to me. And I think about my parents, and I come from a family of seven, and they sacrificed for us. Five of us went to Catholic elementary school, and three of us to Catholic high school. So... I, I, that is really the, the emphasis uh, of where a lot of my interest in philanthropy, I guess, started. It started at home and just seeing the, the care that they had for us. Um, but professionally, I think I got into the job accidentally. But I was curious, and I think that's what I encourage everyone to, to be curious uh, about your, uh, your work and, and the opportunities that may be before you. And so that's where I had the opportunity then. Back then, I'm really dating myself. I started with Continental Bank um, and worked for many years as a program officer and then headed up the foundation. So that's really my roots. Um, so I would say be curious about your surroundings and you know people you meet and issues, and, and somehow it all came together for me in that way. Love Kim, how about you? Uh, a little similar. I think it's in my DNA. I grew up in that time where your grandmother, and I had a grandmother and a great-grandmother. I was fortunate enough to know both on my dad's side. And I grew up in that era where they were the family that would always, you know, supply the dinners if someone didn't have anything to eat, or we would sell popcorn balls and give them to people that, you know, didn't have anything like that. So it was part of my DNA. We were always the open house kind of house, and that continued in my adulthood as well. We were the ones that everybody would come to and, you know, for, for a meal or to have fun or just to play, it was always that house. And then for me, I think it really turned, um, I was in the, I have always been in the investment industry, and one of my clients suggested that I join a nonprofit board. And at that time, you know, you don't, at least for me, I didn't think about it early in my career at a young age, like right out of college, because you're busy trying to accumulate wealth and get a house and take care of children and things like that. But at a point for me when I realized 
I'm okay, my kids are okay, when, when I knew the last one was at least going to college and what they did after that was up to them, uh, I started saying, this is the time for me. It's time now to give back. It's, it's a greater good theory, and I believe in the greater good. So that's when I got seriously involved because there was nothing else. You know, I had decided that I'm okay, my family's okay, and, and the kids are okay. So now it's time to take a breath and see how I can help somebody else. That's great. So it's interesting to me how times have changed. 25 years ago, I was in banking, and I shared an office with a gentleman by the name of David. And the Wall Street Journal would come, and we each would take a section. And he would always take section C, which is the money investing section. And I would always take the personal interest section, section A. I didn't care about the C part. He didn't care about the A part. And I would look over at David, who sat right next to me, and I would think to myself, this guy's the banker. I'm not the banker. I mean, David had the briefcase, he had the suit, he had the hair, I hated him. <laughs> and he's, what's going on with the markets? And I got to read The Economist, and I got to read the Section C of the Wall Street Journal. And I was going through a period of my life in the, my late 20s where I was quite, quite frankly, I was really thinking about my faith and how I could move my faith into action. And I saw myself juxtaposed with David. I'm thinking, somebody doesn't belong in this seat. And David's exactly where he needs to be. And it was at that point where I did a lot of soul searching to say, okay, how do I move my faith into action? How do I build a career for myself, which is focusing more on mission? And David was very much focusing on profit. I want to be very clear. We need the Davids of the world. And he was exactly where he needed to be. But I needed to be focusing on mission. And so it was at that point that I made the decision to move into, I hate the, the, hate the, the title, but the nonprofit sector. And I've been doing that now for 23 years. And it's been really one of the greatest gifts of my life. So just stay with that theme for a second. You know, you um, talk about making that transition and um, in spite of David and hopefully you've gotten him involved with CARE and other organizations. In spite of David. Poor yeah, David right now. David's a very successful. I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't feel badly for David. Let me tell you. David's doing real well for himself. I'm giving David a call when I get out of here. Exactly. Come on over. We need your help. But the, um, you know, certainly that was a certain part of the inspiration for making that leap. Um, you know, you think about inspiration and philanthropy, are there someone that inspired you in this work, either before you got into it, when you're young, or, or once you got into it, I know that certainly, Kara, you, you've talked a lot about a friend of yours. Um, so a bit of advice to all of you, if I get hit by a beer truck tomorrow, apply for my job. It is an awesome job. Truly, we are right there at the, at the center of philanthropy and nonprofits and corporations that are looking to make a difference in the world. And they want to talk to us because of our network, because of our resources. And they come to us and they share their ideas and they share their work and they share their passion. And so the person in this seat as working at Forefront, we have this enormous, this incredible opportunity to be inspired on a daily basis with these extraordinary people. And so that to me, you know, when you're looking for the work that you want to do in the world, how do you connect to those networks of people who are up to something? People who are about making big change in the world, people who want to be the 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 be the, the world, the change that they want to see in the world, to use the expression from Mahatma Gandhi. How do you connect yourself to those networks? Forefront is one way, and again, fortunately for me, I get the chance to do it every day, and I'm paid to do it, which is even better. But I think, you know, we were talking at our table, one of the people that I want to lift up today, and she was already mentioned, is Marka Bristow. We had the real honor, Marka Bristow, really. You know, the work that they do at Access Living really is, a, is just wonderful. And Marka was on our board. And I learned so much from Marka from the time that she was on our board. And here's a woman who had a, an accident in her 20s as she was getting into the prime of her life. And she turned her loss and her tragedy into a, miss, a mission. And as a result, she affected the lives of literally countless people. And she was an architect for the Americans with Disabilities Act. 
she she just was a a champion and an advocate for for inclusivity in all of its forms, particularly people with disabilities. And I think one of the things that we don't talk about in this work is, yes, be passionate about something, but do you have the perseverance to see it through? I mean, think of Amarka, who was de- who dedicated her life over decades to this work and the, the, the impact that she had. But each one of us in this room, through our work and through those issues that we care about, if we can be dedicated over a long period of time Time, the impact that we can have, we can't even imagine right now. So it's those types of people who've been tremendous inspirations for me because of their per- perseverance, because of their passion and their dedication. That's right. Kim, just you would, um, first of all, those you talked about uh, plants be learning at home and the meals and inviting people in. That's still available at your household. I got two little boys who are going to send over, one to get a meal and spend time with you. I cook a little less now than I used to. <laughs> it's to spend time with you and learn. But you talked about um, seeing that in your youth, and then you talked about um, a client suggesting point, uh, joining a nonprofit board. Where do you see true inspiration in philanthropy in Chicago today, or, or is it someone that kind of inspires you continually now in this effort? I think in Chicago, I see it all over. I am, I am so, I am very excited to live in Chicago because I see that inspiration in this room. I know some of the people in the room, and I feel it all over Chicago. I'm constantly, even in Chicago and outside of Chicago, talking about the civic leadership that we experience in Chicago, the philanthropy that we experience in Chicago. So I'm inspired by the businesses and the people. There can always be more, absolutely, and I think everyone should do something and it would be a greater place. But I'm inspired by most of the businesses in Chicago and the people in Chicago because I think we have something very unique in terms of our philanthropy, our civic responsibility, and our and our giving in Chicago. I've been involved with a lot of organizations and you know it's so many of them sometimes I feel like my calling is to accumulate them so that they can have bigger impact you know instead of having 1800 educational funds maybe we should have 800 so that they can have more impact and I'll probably hit on that a little bit more in the conversation with my work at the Field Foundation and what the Field Foundation is doing. So all of Chicago really does inspire me. That's not a cliche. And uh, now I'm really inspired by the millennials, by the youth because they are walking the walk and talking the talk in the big way. I mean some of us boomers, including me, depending on who you're talking to, are rolling our eyes going, you know, just going, whatever, you know. But they're walking the walk and talking the talk, and they're not backing down from it. It, it, I think it's ingrained in them. What was important to the boomers is no longer important to the millenniums. They're living the, it's about the greater good with climate change and impact investing and diversity and inclusion. And I'm also inspired by uh, some of the corporate leaders that are more visible. Obviously, the Chase and the Black Rocks with Larry Fink and Jamie Dutton, what they're doing because I think it is uh, gaining momentum and I feel like the force is at the top because you got to have it at the top for it to work. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. The force is at the top meeting the millenniums in the middle. I feel like we have something going, so I'm very inspired and very hopeful. That's great. Now, I have uh, the benefit of, of I met Julie when I first went to Chicago yeah. uh, almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I moved to Pilsen to work at Crease Ray. Tony, who's now the president, I think he's here today, Tony Ortiz. There he is. And and we got to know Julie awfully well in that work. And we also saw you around Pilsen. And a lot of good, well, there's Chris Ray, the Resurrection Project, mm-hmm. uh, the museum, so many different things. You were, I mean, there's a passion there, obviously. Right. And how did that you know, manifest itself, and but also, what do you see inspiration for how that's carrying in the next it's generation? It's a variety of things. So when I, 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 am, I grew up right across the street from the museum, the National Museum of Mexican Art. So at that time, of course, it didn't exist. So um, many years later, when I became uh, part of my career in philanthropy, I got to know Carlos Rotolero, the founder, and so it was a natural for me. So I I didn't realize that, that all those years earlier as I was playing in the park and my family was playing in the park and using the park, that one day I would have such a great impact. And so, um, you know, Think about where you where you lived, where you come from. So it's around, it's it's in your backyard. So for me, it was you know it happened naturally like that that way. And so and I think about you know um, one special moment 
when the museum had a capital campaign in 2001, and uh, we were celebrating the event, and there it was on the way home, and I looked back, and I saw the museum. The new wing had been added, and it gave me such great pride. It looked like the, the, the place was hovering, you know, at night. Wow. It was not the tequila, okay? <laughs> but when I look back, I was like enormous such pride just sprung out of me. So it's those moments, I think, that, of course, there's been challenges with everything, um, you know, so, but it's those moments. More recently, though, about 10 years ago, when, when Bank of America inherited the uh, LaSalle Marathon, now called the Bank of America Chicago Marathon, I'm inspired by that. It doesn't inspire me to run, but, <laughs> but I have the honor of uh, experiencing uh, the start stage. So there you are, all the runners getting, getting ready to, to do their thing. And it's like every shape, size, color of, of person that you see running. Um, and many of those individuals, 40,000 or so runners, 10,000 of them, run for charity. And so last year we raised $22 million. So it's the largest Eight. single event. Take that $22 million, it emanates from the official charities that we have. Um, it's individuals that have a passion for running that then they, in turn, raise money. And that all equals to $22 million. It, hap- it happened cool. in 2018, and we expect it, it keeps growing every year. So um, things, uh, events like that inspire me. So when I um, also, when I see folks been able to be at the finish line and when you're putting the medal on the recipient, you know, coming through, it's those that have been running for five or six hours or so. Those are the true heroes. Um, and, you know, they're very passionate and emotional about that time. So I would say that in, in everything that you do, you'll find that inspiration, that passion. Um, so that's how I did it. You didn't know this, but there's a prerequisite. If you're at this lunch today, you have to run the marathon. So start working out. You can start at the Hail 1K turkey trot, but you might have to do a little more than that to get ready. Trot. <laughs> trot. Yeah. Um, so just to shift for a minute a little bit to the um, intersection of career and philanthropy and, and, and I guess understand a little bit where that's worked well for you and maybe where it's been a challenge. And, you know, Kim, you know, just talking to you over the uh, last few weeks, certainly, but over the last couple of years, you've spoken about this a little bit and just that, you know, that there's a challenge and so much needs. How do you start to focus your effort? That's, there's a challenge and opportunity in that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could share a little bit about. Sure. Um, obviously, in my career, I've had a couple of challenges and opportunity trying to meld philanthropy in the workplace because it's taken a while but for a long time and there's still quite a few people out there that don't believe you can do well and do good at the same time so you start with that premise and uh, one of my stints throughout my career was with the Illinois State Board of Investment where I was a co-manager of their uh, pension funds. They were about 75% funded then, so it wasn't me. (laughs) I take no credit for where they are now, but um, uh, at the time, the uh, former President Barack Obama was a state senator, and he had heard from numerous citizens that had businesses, that there was no access for minority and women-owned businesses to pension fund dollars. So he would call all the pension funds in front of him and public browbeating this this, uh, organization, I mean, this uh, panel did, just to say, why not? You know, so I took a portion, in addition to being portfolio manager, I took responsibility for helping Illinois State Board of Investment create their emerging and minority women uh, program that gave them access to pension fund dollars, which a lot of times is where the money is in the financial services as it relates to that. So, but in doing that, you always get the naysayers. I don't know anybody. There's not anybody out there. They, they don't have best execution. So when I designed the program uh, with the staff at ISBE and our consultant at the time, I wanted to make sure that everything that they could say in a negative way, you know, we had already addressed, okay? So we did a study about best execution for 
minority and women-owned firms. We did a study and, and put that information in there, and it was no different. You had the normal bell curve that you would with anybody else. Uh, we put together a list of people to introduce some of the majority brokers to, so when they said there was nobody, it's like, here's some people you can't consider. You do your own due diligence and choose from there. And it became the probably the best or... or, or we gave out the largest number of assets to minority and women-owned firms on a percentage of asset basis. ISBE was about $12 billion. We would give upwards of 15% of that money to minority and women-owned uh, and disabled firms, uh, whereas CalPERS was very active in the day, but they're $200 billion. They were giving out 2%, you know. So on a percentage of assets, we were like the top-ranking uh, program in there, but it came with a bunch of challenges. And at the end of the day, the uh, managers and brokers that the majority firms and the pension funds eventually hired uh, performed, like I said, just as well, or, or had the same bell curve that anybody that anybody else had. So that would have been one of the challenges. And I had a similar challenge at. Uh, I uh, chaired the board of ISAC uh, for previous Governor Quinn at the time where the 529 prepaid tuition program was having some issues. One of my board members is here. Thank you for your service. <laughs> uh, but it was a trust issue. Um, you know, they, they weren't sure that they were getting the bang for the dollar. People weren't sure that the money would be there. And it was similar to it wasn't a full faith and credit guarantee, so therein lied the rub. Uh, are we going to have that money? So we went in and changed the full board and uh, brought in some new staff and was able to make a difference and bring the trust back to that program as well and um, uh, have that program continue with with some success even today. So, I mean, there are a number of times and challenges that I had throughout my 30-something year career, uh, but those are some that come to mind specifically as it relates to uh, philanthropy in the workplace and, and doing well and doing good at the same time. You certainly did that and had fun. The amount of good that has come from that and yes. inspiring philanthropy in communities. It's tremendous. Absolutely. But talking like that, your careers they're going to be calling you back into duty here very quickly. <laughs> we need you. Eric, you know, you talked about your career change um, and going to care, but also at Forefront, having the best job, because you really do, you see that intersection all over. Some experiences in that you might share? So when I, when I would go to a cocktail party when I was working at CARA and people would say, what do you do? I say, I work for CARA. And they'd say, what is CARA? And I'd say, well, we're an organization. We help individuals who are homeless, people who are struggling in poverty. We help them to get jobs and keep jobs. And people who would hear that, they'd, oh, wow, that's cool. Oh, tell me more. Or I, I would always get the, you know, oh, you're such a good person. <laughs> My friends would be like, no, he ain't a good person. Let me tell you. <laughs> but there was this level of engagement when I would say that. They'd be like, oh, wow, how cool. Now when I go to a cocktail party and I say I work at Forefront, they say, what's Forefront? They say, well, we're the state association for nonprofits and foundations. And we do education and we provide advocacy and we also mobilize our members to work together on issues that are important to them and issues that are important to the sector. <laughs> They're like, I think I'm going to go get another drink. Right? <laughs> and I want to scream because I want to say, no, 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 no. That's such the coolest work in the world, right? Especially that last part mobilizing our members to work together, to work collectively on issues that are important to them and important to the sector. Because I want to follow up on something that, was, that Kim said earlier, this notion of this collective work. And I'm convinced through my experience in this field that if we do not get organizations, public, private, philanthropy, nonprofits, to work collectively on issues that we all care about, we're going to continue to be operating at the fringes. We are going to be continuing to operating in the margins. If we're going to move the needle, then we have to work collectively. And it requires organizations like Forefront that, quite frankly, isn't doing the sexy work, but we're doing the heavy lifting. We're the backbone organization in which all that collective action rests. So I'll give you two quick examples. Number one, we built Forefront uh, with a lot of people in this room. We helped to build the largest public-private coalition in the country focusing on Census 2020. We have 26 funders. We have over 100 nonprofits. We have cities, counties. We have the state all working together 
under the forefront umbrella, focusing on making sure people, particularly in undercounted communities, making sure they're counted for Census 2020. Billions of dollars is at stake. Representation in Congress is at stake. But if we were all operating in our own individual silos, we wouldn't have the power or the impact that we have. The second thing, and by the way, this is, I'm going to use this the next time I go to a cocktail party because this is sexy. We are an anchor tenant, along with our friends at the Field Foundation, at the Impact House. And people are like, ooh, tell me more. This is cool, folks, because it's going to be the largest uh, co-working space for philanthropy in the country. So no nonprofits are notorious for working in silos. Let me tell you, philanthropy is even more notorious for working in their own individual silos. And this is going to be a space, and it was uh, created by a gentleman by the name of Israel Adonage, who I'm sure many of you know from Fabric Impact House. And he's bringing us together. There's nine foundations uh, in there right now, and, and plus a forefront. And it's going to be this really cool space where people come, uh, foundations are going to be located there, but nonprofit programming is going to be done there through Forefront. And there could ultimately be 15 to 20 foundations under one roof. Imagine the, the, the collective action that could occur, the partnerships, the conversation. How is that going to be leveraged so that we truly can work together and move the needle on some of these issues? So stay tuned. We're moving in in the spring, but that's going to really be a transformative moment, I believe, for Chicago, and I think it's going to have an impact on philanthropy nationwide. So really, really exciting. I'll make a quick comment on that uh, as it relates to the Field Foundation uh, going into that space. You know, imagine the possibilities when you're sharing ideas and philanthropy and uh, civic engagement and civic involvement. I just think it's huge. Uh, just like Eric does, it's going to be huge and have a real big impact. And one of the things we've been trying to do at the Field Foundation and, and uh, being in this combined spaces, just a part of it, is we're a small organization uh, compared to the Joyce and the MacArthur and Chicago Community Trust. So when we hired our, our current CEO, Angelique Power, some of the conversation was around pipeline. Okay, we can start, we're doing due diligence, we're doing different things at the Field Foundation, we're looking at different missions, Missions. Uh, we're, we're focusing in certain areas, the south and the west side and so forth. So as we give to these smaller organizations, uh, because we have limited funds, maybe we can share ideas with the Joyce or the MacArthur or the next level so that they can continue uh, uh, their stream of income and then get more. So kind of like build a pipeline and as it moves through the pipeline it grows and grows and grows so that these organizations can have bigger impact and I see that uh, taking place with this shared workspace as well as many other very positive things. And is, I've heard a bit about it yeah. and it's unbelievably exciting. However, at Big Shows Fund there's been a lot of talk about shared office space with me going to some office alone and them being in another office. I don't know what that message is. I'm going to talk to someone about that issue, though. Um, but just that idea of sharing ideas and sharing space, you know, and kind of, you know, the backdrop of this Edelman study and uh, what, what employees are saying about their desire um, and increasing expectations, really, of employers to be change leaders. Um, you know, I'd like to hear from the three of you just about strategies that you're seeing work well. And maybe, Julie, just, you know, one that cuts across sure. many different um, experiences and desires. And then you put that in the workplace, and one is, you know, senior leadership, understanding all those, and then building. And you at um, Bank of America have done unbelievable work of cutting across the organization, and one of the things I've heard about from you and others in the organization is, I think it's courageous discussions. Courageous conversations. Conversations. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's not, we didn't invent it, but um, a few years ago with the some of the issues that were impacting our communities, especially with Bank of America, really being a coast-to-coast -coast in the U.S. and in every uh, state almost, uh, it we saw issues very close. Our employees were affected by it. So um, courageous conversations are a way to bring dialogue around the table. It could be, you know, two people. It could be a group of people. It could be a formal panel that you get together, but um, it's a way to raise awareness and education um, and um, collectively uh, discuss how we're so different but yet the same. So some of the issues we have discussed 
Vietnam War when uh, Ken Burns had his uh, docu- ten-part documentary and Bank of America was supporting it nationally on PBS. So uh, it was an opportunity for us to bring about you know discussions locally about the Vietnam War. And we learned that there was one employee, for example, she told her story how she spoke to her uncle. He know she knew he served, but yet. You know, he never talked about it, but this is a way to open up that dialogue, that conversation. So we have conversations on domestic violence, on really on drug addiction, on on wellness, mental wellness, PTSD, etc. So through these courageous conversations, the company has supported you know this notion. So whether it's individual employees that want to come together at a local level, or uh, sometimes they're uh, sent uh, through a webinar, we have, might have an expert. A panel that put together. So courageous conversations are a way. Again, responding to our employees really uh, told us how some of these issues are impacting them, uh, and a way to bring it and talk about it in the workplace. The other thing is our employee giving. Um, we we responded to our employees. They were telling us we want to give and we want to give to who we want to give. Um, so rather than having a very set campaign time like we did before, we said, okay, employees, you can give any time. Recurring payroll. One-time gift, whatever, uh, any 501c3. So we made it very flexible for them and enabled them to um, to build, uh, to give. So when you look at that number of $8 million or so that our employees have given over the last five years, it's only rising every year because, again, we have empowered our employees to tell us. Uh, there have also been some heavy public policy issues, and I've not seen you know companies now feel um, compelled, again, <clears throat> because we wanted to respond to our employees. Um, And um, when uh, there was the shooting in Parkland, Florida, in the school, uh, we responded and we said as a bank, we would not lend to uh, gun manufacturers of assault weapons. So... um back in April uh, last year and it's been a hard conversation of course with our clients but again we heard that from employees um, and so we responded in that way so um, we are seeing more I'm seeing more and more kind of general you know broader public policy um, uh, decisions and and stances that companies are taking Aaron Kim do you guys have any thoughts on that as well or examples I would just echo what she's saying about the courageous conversations and to also, when you think about diversity and inclusion, it's a cliche now to talk about that, but focus on the inclusion part. The diversity part is kind of a given. You can count the numbers and do the numbers, but think about how that person feels, what they might be going through, and as you design programs in corporate America, uh, focus on the inclusion part and not just the diversity part, because I think that's going to make a big difference, and it makes a difference to the person that you're trying to bring along, so that's the only thing I would add to some of your comments. Erica, what do you see and work with all these just, companies? Just really quickly, you know, it's funny. When I made that switch from banking to uh, the nonprofit sector, it was, you know, you either want for-profit or non-profit. And certainly the millennials now are saying, no, I will have both, thank you very much. I will have profit and I will have purpose. And the company that I come to and work at, they had better understand the importance of having an impact not only on the bottom line, but also on the environment, uh, on the community, on the employees, and, and the triple bottom line, if you will. And that's not be, that is uh, not an aberration. That is the norm now. And so you're seeing this, this uh, movement of, of the B Corp community throughout this country and the you know, 1,200, 1,500 companies throughout the, the country that are focusing not just on maximizing profit, but also having within their bylaws that they uh, must consider social impact as well. That's not a trend that's going away. And so I think companies now have to do more of these courageous conversations and look at how they're investing their monies and look at their vendor list and look at the inclusion uh, that they have not only at the board level but in executive leadership. It's a very exciting time um, and I think there's great opportunities for all of us regardless of the industry that we're in to really make a difference. Okay, let's give our panelists, let's give Josh Hale a big round of applause. Wonderful program. We have time for a few questions. If anybody has any questions you'd like to address to any of our panelists up here, just hold up uh, your blue card. Alex, I see several questions down here in front and back there. Um, And meanwhile, 
Josh has a few questions in hand. Um, I want to remind everybody that our programs are broadcast, podcast over WGN Radio. So if you didn't get everything down on your little notepads that you heard today, you go to WGN Radio. And we have a few more questions here. There you go. Well, this is a rapid fire here. <laughs> All right, so uh, first question I have is uh, from Patty Bidwell and the Bidwell, found, uh, uh, Bidwell Foundation. And she says, I don't, I don't see the support or awareness of the many philanthropic efforts that you and others represent by our politicians. Uh, in fact, they sometimes undermine those efforts by ignoring them. What can we, what can be done to change that? <laughs> we have to have an involved electorate. Sorry, you know, is our employees are giving and active and telling us as a company what we should be doing? We should be encouraging them, of course, you know, to vote. <laughs> so that's how we do it at the ballot box. Um, and so I think civic engagement um, is should be encouraged. Anybody else? I mean, uh, I see Sean Healy here from the McCormick Foundation and the great work that they do around civic engagement. So critically important. I think this past five, six, however time period, number of years, if it's shown us anything, it's the importance for all of us to be uh, voting, uh, to Julie's point, and also to be counted for Census 2020. A lot is on the line. So that definitely is something that each of us can do. I would echo the get everybody registered to vote uh, because that's the way you're going to change things and also you know there's nonprofit organizations but there are a lot of agencies and government officials that could use the help of the people in the room as well so it's you know it's uh, a blood sport in Chicago I'll just say that but it's necessary so also consider uh, some of the governmental agencies to help work with and to help these politicians do the right thing so I saw Jose, Jose Rodriguez here from the Dana Murphy Scholarship Fund, and he asked a question. Based on your unique experiences, what are the most exciting and or promising innovations in philanthropy in Chicago? I think we talked about one, yeah. the Impact House. That's right. mm. That is so cool. That is really cool. <laughs> you know, I know Izzy uh, Donage and his passion for, you know, it started many years ago with, with working with youth. So I think that is exciting. I would agree. I would also one more, add one more, and I think that you know philanthropy has historically here in Chicago done a wonderful job of investing in direct service organizations, obviously critically important. But I think there's more conversations being conducted now about the systems and the policies that have resulted in a lot of the inequities that we have in our society right now. That's something that foundations have never wanted to really talk about or be a part of. I think there's more conversations about, particularly around the area of you know the racial inequality, and racial inequities uh, that certainly are very pervasive, not only in our state, in our, in our city, but around the country. So, I think I'm, I'm going to be curious to see how that, uh, that conversation continues. And I would just add, you hear more and more about impact investing too. Like the YWCA, Dory McWhorter has started an impact investing fund. I know our foundation, uh, or one of the foundations that I'm associated with, we're tying our general mission to our financial mission as well. So you're you're seeing more direct impact investing and focus on that. I think that's has a little momentum now as well. A question here from Amber Smock from Access Living. Amber here, ready. Uh, imagine that it's November twenty fifth, twenty twenty. How will you be prepared to address philanthropic issues in the coming year? How do you think about what you're going to do and strategies? Well, you know the numbers tell us, according to Giving USA, is that about sixty eight percent, seventy percent of giving comes from individuals. That's not going. That hasn't yet. That trend hasn't changed much. And when we look at foundations, it's about 18%, um, bequests 9%, and then corporations 5%. Again, we haven't changed much in those numbers. So I would say individuals, you know, we have to engage individuals more and more. And we are doing it, certainly at, I see corporations doing it, not only at Bank of America, but other companies, encouraging matching gifts, encouraging um, uh, civic involvement, volunteerism, board engagement. I can't tell you now how many employees come to me and, and our and other colleagues and say, you know, I want to get on the board. How can I get more involved? And so um, I think that is one way. I think we, can, we still have to work with individuals because they are really the lifeblood of our philanthropic community. Any thoughts on that? Um, 
very similar to to uh, what Julie was saying, but I would also, you know, I think now about uh, what I see again. I always go back to the millenniums and how involved they are in everything. Uh, Cranes just did a forty under forty, and there was a guy in there who's started a nonprofit organization where he brings people from the inner city downtown who had never left the neighborhood, and so it's a lot of that going on. Uh, my daughter's in the room. I have to give her a shout out because the. Uh, Art Institute does many things in the community uh, trying to expose people to uh, the Art Institute of Chicago and some of the other uh, museums that we have here. So it's a lot going on and I think there will be more of that to talk about uh, this time next year. I love that hope of the next generation. And I would just say really quickly, I think that we need to be ready to mobilize our sector to make sure that policies and, and um, you know, systems are favorable to our work, you know, to do it in an appropriate way, obviously. But that's the reason why organizations like Forefront exist. I mean, you know, with every new administration and new policies, we need to make sure our voice is heard. We may need to make sure that people understand the value of our work, the importance of our work, how we are the backbone of a thriving society and a, uh, the civil society and a thriving economy. So I think, you know, as we look towards uh, next year and these upcoming elections, we need to be ready for whatever comes so that we make sure that uh, we are advocating for our interests. Just to keep on that uh, topic, one of the questions is from Sharon Takinas, the Alfred Group, and she asked about the term nonprofit. And as you talk about the sector, what would be an alternative to that? What's a better, maybe? I, I always like mission-driven. Mission-driven. I mean, you know, we have to make a I'll say we won't say profit. God forbid if we say profit, but we need to make a margin. We need to have a surplus. Otherwise, we That's go right. away, folks. Right. So, it's a it's a horrible term. It's a it's a tax status, and it is. I mean, we are the only sector that identifies itself with what it's not. <laughs> Makes no sense. Right. At least it's a very exciting name. No, exactly. Profit. Let me tell you what I'm not. Okay. <laughs> Running the marathon, and you have to come up with a new name for the sector. No one's leaving here until we get this on. <laughs> um, final question from Dave Catunia at the Communities and School of Chicago. He said, you know, just in terms of the backdrop of our discussion today, how much is um, philanthropy increasing employee retention and or improving the culture within your company, your organization, or what you've seen over time? I don't have those numbers, but I can tell you the, the just by the amount I see of our giving uh, that when employees, you know, using matching gifts, uh, our employees uh, giving on their own. I'm impressed by that number myself. When I think of my colleagues collectively, you know, giving that and times that over many, many companies uh, that do that, I'm impressed by that. Um, I would think that the hope has to be, again, in the individual. I see the, the momentum. Um, you know, different generations of people are working together now more than ever before. Um, so I think we all have to, you know, understand and learn and respect that. And so we all have each of our potential or something to give, you know, to bring to the table. So understanding that is important. So, in terms of, so Dr. Meese, yeah. I just want to thank Eric, Kim, and Julie, who have all had a big impact in my life. <laughs> Thank you.